Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Trisha Bobita. And I am Greta Johnson. And today we are talking with actress Alex Kingston. She played Dr. Corday on ER and also River Song on Doctor Who. We'll talk with her about what she's obsessed with later on in the show. But first, let's just take a minute to realize how exciting it is, Trisha, that you get to talk to someone who's in Doctor Who. I'm still very excited about it. (laughs) This interview happened, and I'm still excited about it because Doctor Who is my favorite show. And River Song, the character played by Alex Kingston, is kind of my favorite character. How could you know? I'm an archaeologist from the future. I dug you up. So Doctor Who is a super popular show around the world. It's also extremely complicated. So Trisha, we thought what we would do is have you explain to the people what Doctor Who is all about. Okay. I'm an evangelist for this show. I feel like I have a pretty good Cliff Notes version of what Doctor Who is that I can tell people. You're a good nerd ambassador, but we kind of thought we would actually like kick up the stakes a little bit. So we had our executive producer, Joel Meyer actually read the Wikipedia page about Doctor Who, except it's in German. So you're going to actually kind of like live translate the German Wikipedia page, even though you don't speak German and turns out neither does Joel. Sorry, everybody. Who speaks German? How do you say sorry in German? I feel like we should look that up. Okay, this feels a little bit like being asked to run in sand. Uh, It'll be easier when you're on pay For no good reason, but let's do it. Let's make Doctor Who slightly more complicated. I am ready. Challenge accepted. All right, here we go. Doctor Who ist eine British Science Fiction Fernsehserie, die von der BBC produziert wird. Doctor Who is a British science fiction television show from the BBC. Seit Reisenden der Nu als der Doctor bekannt ist. It's about a character who's an alien named the Doctor. He's not actually a medical doctor. He has a machine called the TARDIS. It's how he travels through time and space. It looks like a blue police box, kind of like a telephone booth. But it's bigger on the inside. This is so confusing. And also, this German sounds much more Muppety than the real language. You can tell he is of Scandinavian descent and has watched a lot of the show, the Swedish show. Started in 1963, went to 1989. That was the original run. In 1996, there was a reboot that didn't work. We don't talk about. 2005, that is when the new series that's still going was rebooted. That's where I fell in love with the show. William Hartnell. William Hartnell was the first Doctor. There's been 11 more since then. The character regenerates, sort of like how James Bond is different every few years. Doctor. Doctor Veard von der Englischen Schauspielerin, Schauspielerin Jodie Whittaker. Abden. 12 times in a row as the character has regenerated. It's been recast as a man. Now, for the first time, it's going to be a woman named Jodie Whittaker, which is very exciting. I need Frau DC Rolly Verkopert. Verkopert is exciting then? Uh, sure. Yep. 
I have to say you actually did a really good job at that considering. There were some dates that I clung to. Yeah, Also help. the word TARDIS. <laughs> I really want to apologize to the German people. Yeah, that's probably a good idea. I'm thrilled that our guest today is Alex Kingston, who plays my favorite character on Doctor Who, River Song. And actually, she's much better at explaining this whole British sci-fi phenomenon than the rest of us. So let's just let her take a crack at it. Doctor Who is the longest running sci-fi show in the world. And it celebrated a few years back uh, its 50th anniversary. So it's 50 years. 50 years. And now it's over 50 years. But um, it started when television was still only in black and white. And it's sort of like part of the fabric of being British in a way. I mean, it's like the Queen, Fish and Chips, and Doctor Who. For people who don't know the show, the character of the Doctor is, he's, he's actually an alien or he comes from another planet, but he looks like a man and um, he can regenerate a little bit like a snake shedding a skin. And so with each regeneration, uh, he takes a different form, shape. And is cast uh, by a different actor. And at is that cast point. by a different actor. And so we've gone from the very first Doctor who was actually called Grandfather, um, and his name was William Hartnell. And he was, my gosh, I think he was, he looked like he was in his 70s. Mm-hmm. And his companion was his granddaughter. So through the 50 years, really, we've had all these different actors playing the Doctor. And um, because of its longevity, it's a show now in a way that you could have sort of five generations sitting and watching it at the same time and all enjoying it on different levels. I mean, there will be young children whose grandparents watched it when they were young children and those grandparents will still be watching it because once you start, you don't stop really. And those young children might have older siblings who are already watching it on a different level of understanding and then they might have older siblings or their parents i mean it just goes on and on so it's it's i find it fascinating i watched it as a young child i think i started watching probably when i was about 7 or 8 mm-hmm. and i'm actually quite surprised when i meet children who are three or four who are are already watching it and know all the sort of the taglines and whatever. (laughs) And I just say, aren't you scared? Doesn't it frighten you? It is scary sometimes. It is scary. And I certainly remember when I started watching it, I could only watch it holding a cushion so that I could, you know, when I got a little scared, I could just put the cushion in front of my face. Mm -hmm. Um, Or if it got super scary, I would run out of the living room and I would watch it through the crack in the door. Jam, So I could still see the TV, but I felt a little bit safer with being actually out of the room. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the the Daleks couldn't get you if you were in the other room. Yes, Yes. or the Cybermen. They were were the ones that frightened me the most, the Cybermen. (laughs) I think it's also what's kind of incredible about the show. I think for small children, without them even really realising it, and it's certainly um, something that in a way I've just described, is that... As a small child, it's sort of very much part of the important sort of learning step that a child takes, which is 
feeling fear and facing fear and getting through that. Yeah. So it's sort of, you know, part of one's psychological development or it, or it helps in the process of one's psychological development as a child. It's part of what narrative does for us, I think. Yeah. The children's stories have to be scary, but not too scary. Yes. But it's a way to learn to be scared. It's yeah. a way to learn to be scared and to overcome that and to realize that you're okay. So I think that's one of the key things about the show. And also it, it's it's an incredibly safe show. The Doctor, who is obviously the chief protagonist, he defeats his enemies through his smarts, yeah. his brain. He doesn't use a gun. He doesn't yeah. have you know weaponry. And I think in today's world, particularly in America, that's a good lesson to try and teach young people is that you don't always need arms in order to overcome somebody. You can overcome them with your brain. I love, yeah, I think that's one of the things I love most about it is that it's adventurous, but there's cleverness and empathy being used to solve problems. Yes, As opposed to a machine gun. Yes, exactly, exactly. I think, too, one of the things that's big news for fans of the show, and I think has become sort of a a conversation point for sort of feminists everywhere, is that for the first time ever, there will be a female doctor. Yes. And I saw a little clip online of you were on stage somewhere when you found out. That was kind of fun. Yes, I know. <laughs> to get to experience that with a bunch of fans yeah. that moment. You know, it's funny because we were talking. Um, there's all We always, um, when we meet fans at conventions, there's always a moment where there's a Q&A. So we were sitting, chatting, and all of a sudden we could just sort of had the sense that People weren't listening to us anymore or they were listening, but everybody was sort of distracted and on their phones. Uh And I think it's just that the announcement had just come out. And so, yes, we all experienced it together, which was really nice. Give me a secret. I will hold on to it. I do not. Mm -mm -mm. So So you know who the next doctor is. (laughs) We do. (laughs) Have they just announced it? Yep. Wait, they did? Jodie Whittaker. Jodie Whittaker? Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. God, I'm always the damn cradle snatcher. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. I, she's a really great actress. She's fantastic. Oh my god, that's so exciting. Oh, how fabulous. And what does that feel like for you knowing that I think River Song maybe put a crack in that glass ceiling by being the first character on the show to go toe to toe with the doctor in some ways. Not a traditional companion on yeah. the show. No, she's who not needed a companion. The doctor. She's a no. wife. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and someone who could travel through time and space. Who can fly the TARDIS yeah. better than the Doctor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, some real, some really groundbreaking stuff that your character got to do that maybe sort of inched the door open for this latest move to just go for it and regenerate the Doctor into a woman. I think certainly that that has... It certainly has helped with the character of River because traditionally the companion was a female. Uh, I mean, there were a couple of times where there were also males, male companions, but they were usually friends of the female companion. But the female companion was always sort of in the position of being the person who was learning. 
right. and who was being taken along on this extraordinary journey and adventure, but actually was somebody who had no knowledge and was being given knowledge by the doctor. Whereas River is, as you said, she meets him as an equal. Yeah. And in some cases, she may think she's above Oh, I think him she outsmarts him on more than one occasion. <laughs> so, but also I think um, bringing um, the master back yeah. in also, the, yeah. the person of Missy, uh, who is also, she's an adversary, but she's more complicated than that. And again, she's, he really um, is up against it with that character. Yeah. So it's fantastic and it's great for girls. And that's something that, I, I mean, I see... Um, when I meet fans at conventions, not only do I see so many people cosplaying as River Song, but I also absolutely see a number of girls cosplaying as Missy, but also the number of girls who cosplay as the Doctor. Yeah. And so whenever I see them, I just have to say, hello, husband. <laughs> um, and they love it. So it's absolutely time for this to happen. And the truth is also, there were only supposed to be, I think, 12 regenerations. Right. And so in a sense, they've gotten around that issue by saying, well, maybe the 12 regenerations were the 12 male regenerations. You know, maybe now yeah. the doctor can regenerate into something else. Maybe an animal next time. Yeah. <laughs> but certainly um, it's welcome. And, and having been at the um, Wizard World convention in Chicago, it's nothing but positive. Yeah, I think it's going to be exciting for people to see. And it's fun, too, to watch anytime there's a, a changing of the guard. Yeah. It's a little bit anxiety-inducing as a fan, but also yeah. exciting to see what a new person's going to bring to that role. I had, over the weekend, I was sort of concerned because I thought all the women and the girls are going to be really positive about it. But I was a little concerned about how the boys might feel, the little boys or, you know, the guys. Yeah. But again... They were all like, bring it on. I think it's fantastic. I mean, everybody has actually been very, very positive about this. I think it's going to be really exciting to see and, and fun to watch. And like you said, for a show to keep feeling fresh and new, why not take a show that can literally go anywhere in time and space yeah. in this direction? Yeah. Why not? And in the last episode that I was in, there was a moment in one of the scenes where I looked at Peter Capaldi's doctor and said... Uh, you remind me of my second wife. <laughs> yes, of course. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah, the show actually has a reputation for being good on issues of gender and representation in a lot of ways. It's, again, one of those ways that I think Doctor Who and uh, sci-fi often can break rules or taboos that we might see in other parts of media, pop culture, in terms of, you know, Star Trek having the first interracial kiss, other things like that that have yeah. happened on screen. Yeah. Well, Chris Chibnall, who has now taken over from Stephen Moffat as the um, showrunner, Chris Chibnall created Torchwood, which is another sci-fi show. Sort of a spin-off of the world of Doctor Who. A spin-off of yeah. the world of Doctor Who, but whose lead character in that, Captain Jack, is bisexual. If not pansexual, Pan right? Exactly. Species yes. agnostic. Species, yes, exactly. You're <laughs> absolutely right. Yes. <laughs> now, there's been rumors that that show might return. Yes. And those rumors are sort of gathering. There's uh, Gathering steam, maybe? Gathering steam, yes. So watch this space or hear this space, or whatever <laughs> you want to say. Now, it would, of course, be very logical for River Song to appear in Torchwood or, you know, time is uh, fungible, so 
potentially come back to Doctor Who. I wonder as someone who's gotten to, to work on so many other shows, is there a fictional universe that exists in television where you just think it would be awfully fun if River Song got to pop in for an episode or two, whether it would make sense narratively or not, just a, a place where you think it would be fun to drop River Song and see what well, happens. Well, I, I actually, I told Stephen Moffat I wanted River Song to drop in on Sherlock. Oh, good. That would be delightful. <laughs> I would love uh, to see that happen. I said, you know, she could just be there. <laughs> we don't explain it, we don't, but, but she's there. And the fans would go crazy. Oh, my goodness. The fans would go insane. Yeah, Stephen Moffat being in charge of Doctor Who and Sherlock, basically at the same time, yeah. Yeah. makes him, I think, you know, the... the the nerdiest nerd the of the nerdiest all. nerd of them all exactly in a minute trisha talks with alex about her obsession something she grows in her backyard it's just like a volleyball sized explosion of teeny tiny star like flowers i mean it's amazing you're listening to nerdette Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Tan Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. On Nerdette, we talk to well-known people about their little-known obsessions. And Alex Kingston's little-known obsession is a very specific and kind of weird genus of plant called the Allium. For listeners who don't know what an allium is, it's basically related to the onion or garlic family. And in a funny sort of way, it's sort of like a much bigger, more robust chive and chive flower. So um, very, very sort of sturdy, long, straight stems with then these just fantastic balls (laughs) (laughs) balls on the top balls of flowers Um, all different shapes and sizes colours and they just make me smile and you grow them yourself now? well this is where the obsession comes in because <laughs> I've been told I can't. Oh, um, no. I've been because I've been living in Los Angeles for close to twenty years. Every time I would go back to England and I'd see these fantastic displays of alliums, but yet coming back to LA, I'd be told, "Well, it's impossible. You can't grow them in LA because you're in the wrong zone. The soil's not right," and it would sort of drive me crazy but at the same time I sort of was just resigned to it but I think that's then why I slowly started to become obsessed because it was something that I couldn't have something that I was told was impossible to achieve and uh, I just thought damn it I'm gonna grow those alliums I don't care yes <laughs> I'm gonna don't tr- let them tell you no. I don't let them tell me no I'm gonna try I'm gonna do it and so um I ordered um, from the Dutch are kind of really, in my mind, the best growers. And I found this one supplier that actually would ship to America, ship to L.A. And so I went through their catalogue and I chose my favourite 
alliums. So yeah, I ordered about I think I ordered about five different types. Um, I put them in the in the refrigerator, so I sort of kept them overwintering in a way, and I had. Hundreds of bulbs, I mean. <laughs> and so I really I was out planting, and I I also decided to plant them in different sections of the garden as an experiment. Mm, yes, to see like which one side of the garden is a little bit more shady, even though it's in LA. I just thought I've got to give it a go, and I'll let's see. And um, it was amazing because they all came up and were beautiful oh my god and and at different times like yeah. there was there was one particular bulb they came up the first and then in a different part of the garden the other ones came up and and I was amazed because even the ones that I planted in the dirt they bloomed and um the other ones that I was really thrilled with were these alliums they're called Schuberti or Schubertii I don't quite know how to um pronounce it but they are huge and they're what is that? That's about a volleyball, maybe. That's a yeah, basketball? volleyball. Yeah, basketball size. Mm-hmm. They're basketball size, and they look like if you're watching a firework display, and you know you the you see the fireworks sort of explode into those sort of shower of stars in the night sky. Well, that's what this allium looks wow, like. Yeah, it's just like a volleyball sized explosion of teeny tiny star like flowers. I mean, it's amazing. Okay, well, here to answer any and all of your Allium questions is botanist Amy Stewart. She's the author of The Drunken Botanist, which tells the botanical history and science of more than 100 plants, flowers, trees, fruits. She's here to answer your questions about Alliums. Amy, welcome to Nerdette. Hi. It's good to be here. Glad to have you. This is Alex Kingston. Hello, Hello Alex. Hello. Were you just listening to me rambling? I was. I, you know, you seem to have figured it out pretty well, which is, which is don't take anyone's advice. <laughs> Just plant them. <laughs> Make them grow through sheer, uh, sheer force of will, right? <laughs> right, yeah. That's the professional yeah. opinion, sheer force of yeah. will? Yeah, exactly. Something that we haven't talked much about yet is the fact that these plants often are the flower of something that we eat, right? That this species of plant includes scallions, shallots, leeks, garlic, really we're talking yeah. about some of the most beautiful flowers also being the most delicious edible things. I can't think of really any recipe I like that doesn't include one of those things or more if it's yeah. savory, right? Yeah. So, right. And, you know, and they bloom as well. I mean, I've had garlic and onions in, in my garden in Northern California, and they do put up a big, what they call these, the flowers are called umbels. So an mm. umbel is, you know what Queen Anne's lace looks like, where it's a lot of little tiny flowers on stalks. I have Queen Anne's lace in my garden, too. (laughs) Yes, right. So that's an umbel. And so an allium is a globular umbel, (laughs) meaning that it's a globe shape. Globular umbel. Humble, Sounds exactly. like right. a Harry Potter character yes, who's it does. no good. Totally. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, so anyway, all of those things, onions, leeks, you know, they all produce globular umbles, but some are prettier than others. And, you know, it wasn't until it's pretty recently that they came into cultivation for, for the flowers, you know, as horticulture. Right. I mean, that was kind of late. I think it was maybe the early 1800s where they started to be introduced into gardens. So they're kind of a new relatively new idea as a flower. Right. 
What about Agapanthus? Is that part of the same family or is that completely different? It just happens to yes, look vaguely similar. Yeah, no, that's very good. They're very closely related to Agapanthus, which you see all over Southern California, Exactly, right? yeah. They're everywhere. They're actually um, equally closely related to orchids and um, amaryllis. Well, that's so, interesting because orchids grow in California. And as right. you say, agapanthus are everywhere. The truth is, actually, I don't like agapanthus because they're everywhere. Um, <laughs> I know. And there seems know. to they're be, so you know, just the one standard color. Uh, you know, it's either that particular purple or white. Uh, in fact, ironically, when I was at the Chelsea Flower Show a few years back, I spoke to an agapanthus grower in England and he had black agapanthus. And he gave me some bulbs and I tried growing them uh, in (laughs) California and they didn't take. Um, So I don't know whether it was because they had been grown in a British climate and therefore those bulbs still needed that British climate. But they didn't. They just the leaves came, but there was no flower, nothing. And I assumed that I would get a flower because the agapanthus grow so well in California. But um, black agapanthus, that would have been cool. Yeah, that would be interesting. Mm. Yeah, it's one. It's a funny thing. You know, we take them for granted because we see them planted uh, in in the parking lot at the dentist's office and down the median strip on the road. There are these stalks of really quite pretty bluish purple flowers. And again, on the East Coast, people go crazy for them and and want them. But we have them, so we don't want them. Like if if you could get obsessed with orchids instead of allium, think how much happier you'd be. I know, it's true. (laughs) But I like the challenge of it. I think that that maybe is part of the fun here. And you did it. I'm so glad that you had your gardener, who was the doubter, come see for himself. He was the doubter. (laughs) Well, you know, it's a funny thing about, about gardening is that often the best advice comes from your neighbors, the person who's just down the street, yeah. who knows your particular growing situation so well. Yeah. You know, because what's broadly true for Southern California might not be true in your neighborhood. And people take crazy risks, and those risks turn out well. And you only find that out from that person down the road who knows the thing. Well, I also, bizarrely, because I associate sweet peas with England and... Um, sure sort of, you know, lovely English gardens. I grow sweet peas in my backyard in California and they go crazy every year. I mean, I have an incredible show and they grow all along the fence. And that that is sort of, I, that again was an experiment that I didn't know whether it would, would work or not. But I have now every year I have extraordinary sweet peas and I keep the the little pea seeds at the end of the season and then I just sprinkle them the the following year and they come back. Um, And you probably practically have them in winter. Like I bet you plant them in the fall and you get them in, say, February. Absolutely. They start coming in February, (laughs) March and they go right through till September. Wow. I love that you've been able to take these little bits of home too and put them in your yard in Los Angeles. That's great. Yeah, yeah. Well, Amy Stewart, thank you so much for joining us to help us uh, sort out what we should be doing with our alliums in all sorts of climates. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up after the break, Alex assigns some very fitness-forward-friendly homework. You're listening to Nerdette. And now, time for homework. Homework. 
Well, I've just started giving myself homework recently because I didn't know, and I've just been informed, I didn't know that we're supposed to walk 10,000 steps a day. And um, funnily enough, despite the fact that I can fly a TARDIS, um, Alex Kingston is actually really useless with technology. (laughs) And um, I didn't even realise that I have this app on my on my phone it's the one with a little heart you know and it it does things like counts how many steps you walk every day so um i've literally only discovered this in the last week um (laughs) and i've been obsessed another obsession i've been obsessively walking making sure i walk ten thousand steps um or more uh and actually over this last weekend at the convention i wasn't able to so um i've been out walking today in the streets of Chicago, making sure that I catch up. So that would be my homework for people is to um, try make sure they walk 10,000 steps a day. All right. Well, you'll get some back down Navy Pier and then hopefully some sightseeing today in Chicago will get you to that number. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Alex Kingston, thank you so much for joining us on Nerdette. Thank you. Tricia, did you know this app exists on your phone? Yeah, but I don't use it. Ah. I also don't use the Fitbit sitting in the bottom of my drawer. <laughs> Fair enough. I like this app. I think it's kind of cool. It just tells you the number of steps you've walked. I want to know how many steps I can clock by playing ping pong because the Ooh. office got a ping pong table and I've been playing <laughs> a lot of ping pong and I would like credit for the oh. movement I'm doing. All right. Let's look into that actually. How many steps do you get playing a game of ping pong? Yeah, because I don't know how it measures the momentum. So, like, it might be zero steps, actually. But here's the thing about the Fitbit because it's on your wrist and it's kind of measuring the motion of your wrist. Right. Ping pong is all about moving your wrist. Well, then maybe you should get the Fitbit out. (laughs) And play ping pong and it'll think that I took one million steps. Okay. And then do I get a prize? Yeah, man. Yeah, when you game the system. (laughs) I mean, it's not sitting Uh, in a chair and swinging my arm. No, that's true. It is being up and moving. Yeah. We haven't played ping pong at work yet, you and I. Oh. Should we go do do that that right after this? Probably, unless you have a meeting. We'll see what happens. Oh, man. Okay, well, we will report back via Twitter how many steps you can clock while playing a game of ping pong. Very important. And if you have any other advice, dear listeners, for ways to game the system when it comes to your fitness apps. (laughs) Just let us know. Just let us know. The show is produced by us, Trisha Bobita, and Greta Johnson, along with Justin Bull, Joe Dassault, and Candace Mattel. Our executive producer is Joel Meyer, and our intern is B. Aldridge. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, follow us on NPR One, or listen in the WBEZ app. It's really helpful if you give us some stars in Apple Podcasts, more specifically all the stars. Mm-hmm. All of them. Like the excellent Elbivow. Did. Yeah. Thank you, Elbivow. E-L-B-Y-V-I-A-U. That's a tough one, man. I, I don't know how to make sense of that one. I think that it's probably German for something. <laughs> you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. We are at Nerdette Podcast. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. How do you say do your homework in German? Mach deine Hausaufgaben. How do you say I'm sorry in German? Bitte entschuldigen Sie mein schlechtes Deutsch. Sorry, Germans. Please excuse my poor German. Sorry. Most Germans speak really beautiful English. I know. Much more beautiful than that German. I, I mean, he did a great job. Given it was the a valiant effort. Yeah. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. 
Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.